right. Well, let's pray. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. A reading from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. A reading from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and 13 through 17. What then shall we say, that Abraham... Our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, To the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believes. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear? Is not life more important, or is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith? So do not worry, saying, 
what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I don't want to be standing up here with my phone just in front of my face. So. <laughs> All right, so let's start off with the story. I was driving to work uh, Thursday a couple weeks ago, and I had this sudden feeling of like being compelled to speak to God. It doesn't happen often. Usually, I'm just listening to some podcast or the radio. Uh, but this particular time, I needed to get something off my chest, and so I start talking. And the words I say surprise me. I say, God, something feels a little strange. Something's off. I'm feeling a great deal of shame. Shame? I think to myself, that can't be right. What have I done to be ashamed of? I started thinking about what had been going on recently. I've been trying to find a new apartment, getting in the rhythm of working with Storyline, uh, changing rhythms in my other work at Whole Foods, uh, laundry, bills, all kinds of things going on. Nothing I could feel like I'd done wrong. Um, Typical sins I struggle with hadn't been rearing their ugly heads. Um, I just had a lot of things on my to-do list. And when I thought that, I thought, oh, wait, that's it. The list. That's why I feel shame. Because I've learned this about myself recently. I don't prioritize things very well. And so when I get a lot of things to do, everything kind of becomes a top priority. Uh, when there's too much to do, and I don't really do anything at all, I don't try to start. I don't know where to start. So then I distract myself with, you know, things to avoid, uh, things that feel comfortable, that I seek solace in, like chocolate or pie or chocolate pie, all while watching Netflix. Um, but th- these things aren't urgent things. You know, they might be good, might be make me feel good for a moment or whatever, not bad, but not urgent. But then at the end of the day, I go to bed and I think about all those unchecked boxes and I feel ashamed. But there's really a deeper root at work here. As I was thinking about the shame that I felt and how the list operated on me, I recognized there's something else happening. The shame is how I experience the product of what's happening. But what's really happening is worry. The list, see, is a synthesis a lot of S's there, of all the little things or even big things that I'm worried about, uh, things that I am trying to get done, worried about not doing, things that I feel responsible for, uh, big things that are even out of my control, but I just can't get them off my mind. So I worry, and my shame comes to tell me a story about that worry. I make the list because I think I'm helping focus my attention on what's important, what needs to be done. Let's get to work, get it done, we'll check off the list, we'll be good. Um, but because I don't really prioritize well and I procrastinate, everything becomes more important than it really is, and I feel bad about it. I start feeling anxiety, then I freeze, then I feel ashamed for freezing, uh, which leads me to seek solace in those comfortable things. Um, And at the end, my shame looks at this whole cycle uh, with more boxes unchecked and, you know, eating chocolate pie, now I'm gaining weight, so I had another box to work out more, 
you can see the vicious cycle, I think. The shame looks at this whole ordeal, tells me that I have less value because of all the things I don't get done. Um, and then I slot, you know, with all these worries, I slot them into my top priorities. They seize my attention from other things. Uh, they stress me out. They make anxiety, this feeling of distance between where I am and where I want to be, uh, the driving force in my life, not the things that are most important. So I shared the story because maybe some of that resonates with you. And we live in a world of schedules, to-do lists, bills, rents, you know, making plans, responsibilities around the home, around work, all these things going on. Uh, and maybe you have some worries holding on to your attention, too. Maybe you came across this article in uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I came across it uh, a few weeks ago through my Apple News, and they were highlighting the work of this guy named Dr. Graham Davey. Uh, He had assembled this team of researchers that looked over all of the major research on worry, um, more than 50 scientific studies, and synthesized and kind of summarized all of the major insights on worry. I found it very interesting. Um, Dr. Davey makes a distinction between adaptive worry and excessive worry. So adaptive worry is the, the basic decision-making skills. It's, a, it's necessary for anticipating the future, making plans, anticipating action. Um, excessive worry is not particularly productive. You know, it's beyond the point of uh, adaptively worrying. It is, it's not particularly pr- productive or, or even necessary. Uh, Davey also makes a distinction between worry and anxiety. Worry is primarily cognitive, cognitive, primarily cognitive, or psychological. Uh, anxiety is more physiological. It's it's rooted in our bodies more. Um, one thing they discovered is that people who worry excessively believe that if they don't fret, and I kind of feel weird saying if they don't fret, as if I'm not a part of this somehow. Uh, that if we don't fret over every aspect of an event or a challenge that something bad will happen. And it kind of sounds silly to me saying that out loud because um, in reality, maybe we think we, I mean, I think we know how little we can control things with our mind powers. Or do we? (laughs) Right? Uh, But doesn't that drive us to worry, this desire to secure our future? You know, if I can think about it and plan about it and scrutinize these events enough, then I can anticipate anything bad that would happen and I can avoid it. And I can keep it from sidetracking the future that I want to secure for myself. The folks that Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount, in that text that we were uh, hearing, they were worried. They were worried. And not about first world problems. Because they, they were not first world people. These are majority world folks. They're living under Roman occupation. They weren't the haves. They were the have-nots. Now, there were a handful of wealthy aristocrats and government officials and nobles. But everybody else, the literal 99% was scraping by to make a living. There was no middle class. In Jesus' day. And so naturally, this group of people, as we heard, they're going to be worried about food 
and about clothing and providing for their families, having enough to eat and clothes to wear. If anybody had enough reason to worry, it was this group of people that Jesus was addressing. Their worries weren't privileged or frivolous. Um, They were worried about basic needs. And here in this text that we read from Matthew 6, Jesus associates worry with a particular group of people. The pagans. The pagans. You almost have to say the pagans when you, when you say it, right? The pagans. Um, I won't make y'all say that with me like that. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 6, uh, 32, the pagans run after all these things like food and drink and clothing. Now, when we hear the word pagans, part of the reason I feel like I have to say it that way is because we might hear some sort of moral judgment in that term. Like if somebody else called you a heathen, oh, they're just a heathen. Like they've got no moral compass, they're wicked and sinful. But that is not what Jesus is doing with this word. That's not the connotation of this word that Jesus is using. This word means literally the nation. It's the same word used for the Gentiles. These are people who don't serve the living God. Okay, So when Jesus says the pagans, he's talking about people who don't know or serve the living God. Such people run after, strive after, worry about clothes and food and drink. Worry is what people do who don't know God. Worry is a posture of fear that's rooted in a lack of faith in God. So knowing this, how does Jesus talk to this crowd, pretty much of Jews, um, people that seek after God's will in their life, and respond to their worries? He gets right down to business in the first verse of our section today. Verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. That sounds like another commandment, another thing to do, another box to check off. But there's good news here, because that's not what Jesus is doing. He doesn't give them another commandment to add to the 600 plus that are already in the law. His goal here is not another thing to do, or to not do, in order to be righteous. But he's trying to give them a new orientation, a new focus for their attention. And that's really what the whole part of the Sermon on the Mount is doing. Um, chapter 5, uh, he takes some well-known commandments and he's trying to move people's attention. He's trying to change their orientation, orientation as he reinterprets them. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, anyone who nurses anger in their heart against their brother will be liable to judgment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, That anyone who looks at another with lust has already committed adultery in their heart. And immediately before this passage today, Jesus is telling the crowd, don't store up treasures and serve wealth, but serve God and seek after the treasures of heaven. He takes the focus away from the merely material and draws our attention inward and upward. Chapter 6 here is no different. Jesus uses the same jujitsu moves on his audience's attention to worry. I know, I just wanted to say jujitsu. I, I had to fit that into there. He's saying he already knows what his audience worries about. 
I mean, what food are they going to eat that day? Do they have clothes to wear? It's starting to get cold, actually. You might need some, another coat. Will they have to go another day thirsty? I mean, I can imagine people in the crowd listening today are like, we came a long way. I'm really starting to get hungry. I hope this rabbi hired a caterer. <laughs> kind of like us, am I right? I mean, I'm talking about food, right? I'm already thinking about taco joint queso, Shady's Burger. Am I, am I the only one? Is that just me? <laughs> or is that everybody else too? All right. So anyways, Jesus, he doesn't beat around the bush. He speaks right into the narrative of this crowd's worry. and He says, is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. And that word for life, it's more than just you know, the life of our body, the life that we have right here. It's our, it's our soul, it's our spirit, it's our entire well-being and life force. He recognizes the material needs, but he also broadens the audience's perspective, away from prioritizing those needs above, above other things that should be more important. And even then, Jesus takes our attention away from us. Don't focus so much on yourself. Look at the birds. Consider the lilies. Are you not of more value than they? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Will he not clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus here shows the Creator has already put things in place to provide for his creatures, even for blades of grass. Jesus is telling the people here that the heavenly Father actually treasures them. Are you not of more value than they? And that right there is the beginning of us not worrying it's the opening line of a new narrative not one of worry and shame but one that nor that one one that focuses on what we don't have what we lack his new narrative for us is an invitation to this question what do you treasure more the food on your plate or the health of your whole life the clothes you wear or your heart the mind body and soul that God gave to you before we could even answer it, Jesus brings his own answer to the table. He provides the need that he pulls up. Indeed, your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And all these things will be given to you as well. Because you are valued by the Creator who provides for even the smallest pieces of creation. So if we're going to be like the people who know God, who treasure God, then worry must not hold our attention. Our attention goes higher and broader. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's our focus, where our attention must default. We put our treasures in heaven because the Heavenly Father puts his treasure in you. When Jesus deals with the law, he doesn't replace the old one with the new one. He doesn't give us a new to-do list with a lot of boxes to check off. He changes the thing we're focused on and invites us to attend to our own heart orientations. He doesn't come to give his people new laws and more commands to obey. He shows them how to put their treasure in heaven. He doesn't give us, or he doesn't just tell his people to stop worrying. Jesus gives them reason to hope in a father who already knows the things they have need of and who treasures them enough to provide. All right, so the skeptic in me begins to wonder, um, what if God doesn't provide all these things. Um, what if all these things are not added as well? I mean, look at the life of Jesus, for instance. Uh, he was a homeless, itinerant preacher. And he was executed on a Roman torture device. Um, 
Did God take care of him? Why, why didn't God take care of him? Um, and doesn't Paul say how he had to learn how to be content when he had financial need um, or when he was hungry? Uh, he spent a lot of time in prison, didn't he? Why didn't God take care of him? Uh, these questions raise an important point, I think, uh, that's often missed. And that is that God's provision does not prevent suffering <coughs> from happening. God's provision doesn't necessarily mean health and wealth and prosperity in this life if we'll only have enough faith. Um, it wasn't true for Jesus, and it's not a guarantee for us either. What's more is that suffering is often the way that God chooses to reveal himself. Look at the life and person of Jesus himself. God is chiefly revealed through the suffering, self-giving love of Jesus on the cross. And so, even in the face of suffering, there is good news. Even, in, even when it feels like, man, when, when are you going to come through for me, God? When, when, when is the end of my troubles and, and suffering going to go away? There's good news in the midst of that for two reasons. Number one, God does not leave us alone in our suffering. God suffers with us, right? Jesus, through the cross, suffered with us in solidarity with us. Jesus, God knows what it's like to suffer, to face hardship, to wonder when God's going to come through. Yeah? And then number two, in the kingdom of God, suffering and death do not have the last word. God has the last word. And he demonstrates this by raising Jesus from the dead and exalting him to his right hand. And so we don't have to worry, even when we're in the midst of suffering, because God has the last word. And God's last word for us is always life and abundance and joy and peace. That is the last word that God declares over all of us. And we can put our Hope. We can anchor our hearts in that hope. Amen. When I was in college, I was required to read a uh, spiritual biography. Isn't he cute? A spiritual biography for one of my classes about a man named uh, George Mueller. Has anybody heard of George Mueller? Yeah? A little bit? Maybe? Yeah. Um, he lived in Bristol, England. In the 1800s, and God called him to care for orphans. And he ended up caring for thousands of orphans and built five orphanages by the end of his life to care for all of the orphanages that God sent to him. And he did all of this without ever asking for money and without ever going into debt. Matthew 6.33 was his mantra. This very verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. He took that so seriously that his sole fundraising strategy was to pray. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. God provide the needs. This is not just George that's on the line. This is thousands of orphans. His fundraising, his development department was the ministry of prayer. 
God, please provide for me, for these kids. Um, and, and so many stories happen to George Mueller where he's praying and they're right up against the need. And like a letter will come in the mail with exactly the right amount of money, just anonymously. Just some strange coincidence. No, it's the providence and, and sovereignty of God right at work on his behalf to provide all of these things. My favorite story is, uh, is what happens one morning at breakfast time in one of these orphanages. Uh, George Mueller is, um, is very aware that they have almost nothing in the cupboard to feed the kids breakfast. And yet... He gathers all the children together in the mess hall and he stands up at the front and he thanks God. Thank you, God, for providing for us. Thank you, God, for our daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost as soon as he says amen, there's a knock on the door. And it's the baker. And the baker says, I've been up all night. Like, he tells us this really happened. Like, he tells this story. It's almost unbelievable. I've been up all night baking bread for your kids. And um, I wanted you guys to have this. I hope it will help you. As soon as the baker leaves, someone else knocks on the door. It's the milkman. His cart has broken down in front of the orphanage. And he says, listen, I've got all this milk and I have to give it away or it's going to spoil. Do you need any milk? (laughs) Um, Yeah, we need some milk. And that one morning, God provides exactly what the orphans need. What what if we had the kind of faith that George Mueller had? What if we we didn't worry uh, the way I I sometimes do? What if I didn't worry? How would that change what's in my heart? How would that change the way that I pray? How would that change my disposition around other people? You know, Jesus says... That, that people who don't know God or aren't connected to God, they worry, they run, they strive after what to eat and drink and wear. But consider, consider the kind of witness it is to our friends who aren't connected to Jesus to see a posture of faith in us when it comes to our stuff. To see the peace in us. Don't you think they would notice? Like To see the peace in us, to know, you know what? I'm seeking after God. And all of these things are going to be taken care of. I'm, going to, I'm entrusting those to God. Um, and, and the stories that we can tell when God does provide for us, to point to that and say, God gave me exactly what I needed at just the right time. Think of the witness that is to our friends who aren't connected to Jesus. What worries do you need to surrender to God today? In what ways do you need to run after To run hard after God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added as well. The word of the Lord.